Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Once every great while in mankind, there is a leap forward, a change in the way things are done and the way things have always been done, a move toward the future. And of course, I am talking about Leap Day. This is X's for Podcast, and that makes me Nico. I'm Dylan. I'm Kyle. I'm Regina. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive the experience similar to how we might survive this thing that Nico has planned for us. No, no, okay, it's exciting, guys. Here's what happened. I was thinking about the math on it, and I was like, hey, guys, wait, this is a leap year. And I was like, hey, how crazy is that? that it's a leap year and like all of this stuff is happening and I'm kind of kind of remember that like oh shit like all of the craziness of Hoxpox Docs was right around the leap year and it's like gonna stick in my memory and I said to myself self I said if the X-Men began in 1963 well there has to have been a finite number of leap years that the X-Men have been part of so I decided if the X-Men are about a leap forward in evolution and leap years are about leaping forward to mess up how people can just know that their birthday is going to be one day forward to the next year, then there has to be some sort of interesting cross section of the two. And I decided there were no better people to torture with than you guys. Yay. How thoughtful. Hooray! We love torture! <laughs> Woo! I mean, Regina has made it very clear that if someone is getting cut open and there's like a real jacked dude on the page, she's there. I like half of that statement. <laughs> yes, Kyle, we know you're very much into people being half open. We get it. You talk Wait, about it a lot. Oh my on the show. god. Oh, I thought you were so, as you guys can see, this game show is the least dangerous part of this episode, <laughs> and I would like to start things off right away by jumping in. Now, anybody here can answer, you guys can do a consensus, you guys can disagree on the answers, but it seemed impossible to me that with there only having been 15 leap years since X-Men began, that there wouldn't be something to tap into about this. So, guys, without further ado, let's take a look at how the X-Men leap forward along with evolution. Our first question is going to bring us to the first ever leap year that the X-Men ever took part in. That's going to be 1964. Now, what's fascinating is, while this was a leap year, no title was released in February. Early X-Men adventures were still bi-monthly at times, so Uncanny X-Men number three was released in January. With no issue shipping in February, we're going to ask a question about number three. Some things never change. The pages of Uncanny X-Men number three featured a what would soon become regularly recurring moment of awkward. Did this story feature A, the team getting malteds at Harry's, B, the X-Men clashing with Iron Man, C, Magneto attempting to reverse the polarity of the Earth, or D, Xavier's first mind wipe? Mm, you said awkward, so I kind of am leaning towards Xavier's first mind wipe. What I think is awkward is maybe the amount of times Magneto has tried to reverse the polarity of things. I feel like that might be awkward if he's doing it every other week. I kind of agree with Jonah. I, I think it's Magneto as well. Regina, do you have any opinion on this one or are you going to bide your time? I think I'm going to go with Magneto as well. Guys, number three featured the blob finding out where the X-Men live. So Xavier's like, no big deal. I'm just going to mind wipe him real quick. 
Woohoo! Oh! <laughs> Number three, Xavier's just like, um, guys, this isn't working for me. And just mind wipes his nemesis. I should have known. Damn it. <laughs> when things like that happen, why doesn't he just mind wipe the blob into thinking he's a good guy and he could have joined the X-Men? You mean like Maxim and Manon? Dylan, that's horrifying. That is, like, horrifying, Dylan. You're expecting Xavier to be okay with taking away people's free will. And that's not right. The only thing he's really okay with is perving on young women. <laughs> and taking away their free will. He's done that before. Well, I actually wanted to point out a couple of interesting things about some of these other answer clues. As a matter of fact, the X-Men had clashed with Iron Man the month earlier in the pages of Tales of Suspense, where Iron Man and Angel had a crossover moment. Early on, the X-Men were really pushing Angel, which is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, from 1964 to 1968, the X-Men returned to Publishing Monthly, and in 1968, we got Uncanny X-Men number 41, which actually featured two stories. The A story dealt with the grotesque, who would actually go on to die in Nightcrawler Manifest Destiny number one in the year 2009, some 40 years later. So this is a pretty significant appearance from a significant character who would appear over multiple decades. But the B story actually explores Scott Summers' history and future. Scott was raised by a villain looking to use Scott's ability to grow their own. And this issue also had a diamond skin telepath. Did this story feature Emma Frost, Jack Winters, Mr. Sinister or Apocalypse? Now, I feel like Mr. Sinister is the trick option. We know that he's the vampire scary pale man that really did kind of touch Scott when he was younger, but I don't think he was there yet. Scott had not yet felt Sinister's love. <laughs> no, unfortunately, not yet. And I don't think Emma has shown up yet either. No, Emma's first appearance was Uncanny X-Men number 129. Right, so... I don't think Apocalypse showed up yet either. No, so... So, or, or possible elimination? Is it Jack, Jack Winters? Wait. Do we have a group consensus on this? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so guys, let me tell you how Grant Morrison loves his history. In Scott Summers' past, as revealed in the backup stories of Uncanny X-Men 39 to 42, it turns out that Scott was taken in by... Jacko Diamonds, better known as Jack Winters, whose only mutant ability was actually to survive an immense amount of radiation. And through that amount of radiation, he gained additional abilities such as limited space teleport, telepathy, diamond hard skin, among others. This was sort of a fascinating point for Grant Morrison to take some inspiration. Jack Winters, Emma Frost, diamond hard skin telepath, diamond hard skin telepath. It's a really fascinating take on that idea. So you're telling me there's been multiple creepy men in Scott's past who have influenced him as a kid? And I'm saying that he's really into people who are real real white or clear <laughs> well i mean clear Hold is on. his favorite color he <laughs> he liked psylocke for a second she wasn't white no he was that was actually while psylocke wasn't white that's a really you just can't ask asian x-men why they're not white so i'm completely with you oh my god <laughs> Thank you.
The X-Men didn't always see the most consistent publishing schedule. As a matter of fact, they saw a lot of hiccups throughout the years, most notably from issue 67, right after their fight with the Hulk, until issue 93, the issue released just before Giant Size X-Men number 1. During this time, the X-Men thrived primarily on reprints, and Uncanny X-Men number 74, released in February of 1972, was no different. This issue featured a reprint of Uncanny X-Men number 26, in which Angel, through a thought bubble, refers to his own behavior rather strangely as that of an Avengers behavior? Kinda like he also maybe read the Avengers comic books or something? Did Angel, in an inexplicable meta-reference, refer to his behavior as like that of Hawkeye, Captain America, Iron Man, or the Wasp? Do you guys have any initial guesses? I'm kind of leaning towards Iron Man, but I think that might be getting contaminated with my knowledge of Iron Man's future after that point. I kind of want to say Iron Man too, just because they're both rich snobs, but I also kind of feel like it could be Hawkeye because Angel and Hawkeye are kind of written with that idiot idiot flyboy type of talk. (laughs) So I pick A or C. (laughs) My guess, I'm going to go against the grain here. I feel like it's weird enough to, I'm going to say Wasp. And the only reason why is because a lot of the times that I do see Warren, he mentions his wings and talks about flying a lot. And Wasp has wings and flies a lot. So sure, let's go with Wasp. If you had wings, had wings, had wings. But here's the thing, the thing, the thing, the things. Dylan, not only did you get it correct, your reasoning is exactly right. He's basically like, I'm a hothead who takes no shit, and I got pretty wings. I'm kind of like Hawkeye. Like, seriously? (laughs) Oh my god. Dead on? It is such unbelievably bad dialogue. There is like an internet consensus that this should be meme of death. (laughs) Well, from something stupid to something that we should all sort of generally agree is pretty stupid. While the Uncanny X-Men were able to get back on their feet thanks to Len Wein's reimagining of the team in Giant Size X-Men number one, a landmark that redefined comics for literally the rest of time, Chris Claremont got his pen rolling with X-Men 97, at which point he was taking on the reins on his own, no longer working off of one of Wein's outlines or receiving co-writing help from Bill Mantlo. This was a pivotal moment for the X-Men introducing dozens of major characters. When the last page ended with a sort of strange device, did the last page of this issue end with a mutant getting mutated into a mutate, a psychic vision within a psychic vision, a secret security camera viewing a secret security camera, or a wizard under a spell casting a spell? Does anybody have any guesses? I'm gonna go with A. Yeah, I feel like the X-Men have, from time to time, always been about, is this a mutant? Is it a mutate? Is it a mutant that was a mutate? Uh, Yeah, I'm just going to go with that. For some reason, psychic vision is sticking out to me. I don't feel like that's right, but I'm having my own psychic vision right now telling me that it's wrong, and I'm going to go with it. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of want to lean towards the security camera looking at a security camera. You know, Kyle... It's really strange because it's Eric the Red watching Stephen Lang watching the (laughs) X-Men. Yeah, 1976, Chris Claremont didn't quite have visual suspense down yet. And he was on his way, and he really understood where he was going. 
it actually was almost difficult to find anything really funny to poke at that issue with. I also want to mention that that same month saw the release of Champions Number 3 by Bill Mantlo and George Tuska. That finished out the introductory arc of Champions, which if you want to know more about, check out Kyle and Mai's episodes of The Champions in the flashback on X's for Podcast, where you can catch us dissecting that era of X-Men to get a little more understanding as to what we're talking about. But from 1976 to a much more significant moment in X-Men history. The next leap year fell at a really significant time in X-Men. Did the next leap year make a fan favorite introduction for A, Emma Frost, B, Dazzler, C, Sage, or D, Rogue? Which fan favorite Lady X-Men made her debut in the February of the following leap year? Well, I know that Emma made her debut in a January of a year, so I know it's not Emma. (laughs) Random useless knowledge. I believe Sage was revealed technically before Emma, and if we're going by technicalities, doesn't that also knock out Sage? I would think so. And Regina, you are absolutely correct. That is 1981. You are absolutely correct. If you are thinking that Rogue debuted in Avengers Annual Number 10, it would be 1981. Oh, then I believe the answer is Dazzler. Dazzler? It is. It's Dazzler. I I, I was dick shoved because I was like, she debuted in 129. And then Dazzler debuted in 130 in February. And now... Jonah, I know you were really excited. You were like, oh boy, Sage. But Sage didn't, I don't know why you got a little Kyle in there. You got the oh boy from Kyle. But (laughs) Sage didn't debut until Uncanny 133, two months later. Oh, okay. So she was after. 1980 was a very significant year for the X-Men as it had the bulk of the Dark Phoenix saga. And it introduced a lot of significant characters. Rogue was my trick answer, debuting in 1981. Regina with all the Rogue knowledge. I really enjoyed taking a look at those years. But what was interesting was when I tried to put together questions for the next two leap years, I found myself stuck because... I could seemingly only ask questions about the same people. The next two leaps for Uncanny X-Men featured major players from current continuity. Both leap year issues from 1984 and 1988 featured the following characters. Was it A, Magneto? B, was it Emma Frost and Sebastian Shaw? Was it C, Destiny and Mystique? Or was it D, Forge? I'm going to go with Destiny and Mystique. I have no idea, but that's what I'm going with. (laughs) I'm going to agree with Regina and go with Destiny Steak as well. I want to go with Forge. Um, I'm not sure. I, hmm, I'm going to go with Destiny and Mystique as well. And the majority does in fact have it here. When I say the 1988 issue, it's going to immediately come into play, as that's Fall of the Mutants. The 1984 issues were the issues as Rogue was transitioning onto the X-Men and out of Mystique and Destiny's regular lives. It's also of note that February of 1980 had no other X-related releases, while February of 1984 featured the new Defenders 128 and New Mutants 12, in addition to Uncanny 178 by Chris Claremont and John Romita Jr., while Uncanny 226 from February of 1988 was by Claremont and Silvestri, with additional titles X-Factor 25 and New Mutants number 60. (laughs) 
1992 heralded a lot of changes in the X offices, and one of those changes involved a fan-favorite lady making her return after almost a full year with no on-page appearances. While it wasn't in the pages of Uncanny X-Men, which was currently dealing with the return of Mikhail Rasputin and the departure of Chris Claremont, which fan-favorite X-Lady made her return that same month in the pages of X-Men? Was it A, Domino, B, Rachel Summers, C, Megan, or D, Dazzler? I feel like the answer is either Rachel or Dazzler because they are both characters that keep being in comics and then they disappear for years and then they come back and then they disappear for years. I think it's Rachel. Let me go with Dazzler. My thought process might be slightly clouded from the last X-Force, but I'm going to say Domino. Um, well, 92 is past where I stopped reading in my historical reads, so I have absolutely no idea, but I am going to say, uh, Rachel. Well, officially having her appear more times than current X-Men continuity, Dazzler makes her second appearance on this list. Reappearing in the pages of X-Men number 5 alongside Mojo and Longshot after having not appeared since Uncanny, I think, 260 or so. She had one strange appearance in a book called Marvel Year in Review, which was sort of a kind of boutique edition magazine that the 90s became synonymous for with exorbitantly high price points and frequently a glossy cardboard cover. This did not really count for most fans, and this was actually a surprisingly fun return for a fan-favorite character. Uncanny X-Men kind of maybe a little bit saw some rough years when Chris Claremont left, though there were still a number of side titles. In 1992, we also saw the publication of X-Men number 5, X-Factor number 75, X-Force 7, Excalibur 47, Wolverine number 51, all in addition to Uncanny 285. However, in February of 1996, the following leap year, in the pages of Uncanny X-Men 329 by Scott Lobdell and Jeff Loeb, with art by the brilliant Joe Mad, Psylocke gained mystical abilities for what maybe seemed like the first time to a lot of fans in the form of the Crimson Dawn, something I would personally welcome back, even if she's Captain Britain. Which X-Men received their first ever solo issue the same month Psylocke gained the Crimson Dawn? Did February of 1996 see the first solo Storm issue, the first solo Gambit issue, the first solo Nightcrawler issue, or the first solo Sabretooth issue? I know this answer, and I want everyone else to answer first. I feel like 96 was probably a really big Gambit time uh, thing. Yeah, I'm going with that. That is also my guess. Gambit. Okay, I'm gonna go with Gambit. Dylan, ball's in your court, buddy. The correct answer is my very first favorite X-Man before I fell in love with Warpath and Monet. Storm had her first solo comic in 1996. And it was written by the brilliant Warren Ellis, and it had her flirting with Cable, which I obsessively loved. And the artist was Terry Dodson, so the book was amazing. And it was brilliant. Yeah, it's like literally one of the most perfect moments in X-Men canon. I feel ashamed. <laughs> Now, in addition to Storm Number 1 and Uncanny 329, 
February of 1996 saw the publication of X-Men 49, X-Factor 119, X-Force 51, Excalibur 94, Gen X-12, Wolverine 98, and Cable 28, as the entirety of the Marvel Universe made its slow and painful march towards Onslaught. And speaking of crossovers that kind of overtook the universe, the next time a leap year intersected with the X-Men in February... An event was taking place. Which event took place leap month of the year 2000? Was it A, maximum security, B, the 12, C, dream's end, or D, mtech? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea about any of these. <laughs> the year 2000. Maybe it's the 12. I don't know. That's my guess. The 12. All four of these crossovers took place in either 1999 or 2000 in the pages of Uncanny X-Men. The first was M-Tech. That was followed by The Twelve in February of 2000. After The Twelve, we got Maximum Security and Dream's End. But the Leap Month issues took place during the Apocalypse The Twelve crossover. That crossover is such a pivotal moment for X-Men history, it's sort of unbelievable that that and the Dark Phoenix saga, the moment Jean became a dark goddess and the moment Cyclops became a dark god, took place 20 years apart in leap months. Oh, is that what Cyclops is recovering from during New X-Men? Absolutely. That is what Cyclops is recovering from during New X-Men. He had been merged with Apocalypse and Jean with the power of the Phoenix, aided by Cable in an event called The Search for Cyclops, which had a number of very styled covers that made it really difficult to collect the series, managed to split their psychic essences in two. The character Apocalypse didn't come back to darken the X-Men's doorstep again until a lead-up through the pages of Cable Deadpool, and then ultimately manifesting in X-Men Blood of the Apocalypse, Pete Milligan's swan song arc. In addition to Uncanny X-Men 377 by the unbelievably talented Alan Davis and brilliant Adam Kubert, this material is currently available in an omnibus that just came out. This is the X-Men Apocalypse the 12 omnibus. It just got released, so you can probably find it on Amazon with like some kind of coupon code. And this also saw the publication of X-Men 97, also a part of the Apocalypse the 12 story as well as Cable 76. X-Force 99, Gen X number 60, and Wolverine 147 also came out this leap month. In X-Men's tenure, only 15 leap months have occurred. And despite that, despite the fact that only 15 leap months have occurred, two writers have managed to release two issues of flagship X-Men series, whether it was Uncanny or a temporary different flagship, in the same month. Which two writers released two issues of the flagship X title in the same leap month? Were those two writers to double ship Uncanny in a leap month, A, Chuck Austin and Kieran Gillen, B, Chris Claremont and Kieran Gillen, C, Chuck Austin and John Hickman, or D, Chris Claremont and John Hickman. Claremont wrote X-Men forever. Forever! So, one of the answers has to be Claremont, right? Who's going to co-sign with nobody? I'm leaning, yeah. I have no idea, so yes. (laughs) We are your three musketeers. Yeah, let's go with D. So guys, here's the craziest shit you've ever heard. Chris Claremont has never double shipped in the month of February. <laughs> what? Are you kidding? 
It is unfucking believably Chuck Goddamn Austin and John Hickman, who both double shipped in the month of February. And what's unbelievable is when Chuck Austin double shipped in 2004, one of those issues was the trial of Juggernaut, drawn by Ron Garney, who will who will be drawing the Juggernaut story. Hey, no, I that's why I put Chris Claremont in so many of the options because I know that one's tricky. I am. I really am. Silly rabbit. Tricks are for for thoughts. So those were the years 2004 and 2020. And those refer to Uncanny X-Men 435, 436 of the original volume and 6 and 7 of the current volume. In 2004, we also saw the publication of one of my all-time favorite issues of anything ever new x-men 150 which is the climax of planet x new mutants number nine wolverine number nine mystique number nine what the fuck and ecstatics number 17 as we reach the end of our illustrious experience going through the leap years of x evolution one of the members of the five made their cover debut in a leap year was it egg hope summers tempest or D, Elixir. Which member of the five made their first cover debut in a leap year? Hmm. I feel like it's probably Tempest, or Eva Bell, as other people probably know her as. I have no idea, so I'm going with Hope. Yeah, I want to go with Hope. Now, Hope is the safer answer, but I want to say Egg, because I like the way Dylan says it, and he won't say it for us anymore. <laughs> Even- oh man, I was just about to say, Dylan, I can't read the letter. Can you say it? <laughs> <laughs> Aww. Aww. I, even if I knew that was the right answer, I would still say any of the other ones. Would you call him by his other name, Goldball? I would not say any of his names. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing. Hope may have debuted in January of 2008, but she didn't appear on a cover until February of 2008 in her glorious father's arms. Aww. That's adorable. So sweet. (sighs) Brings a tear to my eye. Speaking of sad things, because, you know, crying sad, so just let me have it. So speaking of sad (laughs) things... We are at our final question. Oh. The X titles have rebooted multiple times around February of a leap year. Which writer missed releasing a leap year issue by one month? Was it Matt Fraction, Ed Brubaker, Kieran Gillen, or Brian Michael Bendis? Okay, I don't know the answer, but Fraction is related to math, which is related to numbers, so I'm going with Matt. <laughs> I love your delicious <laughs> I'm going with Ed Brubaker because he has Baker in his name and I'm hungry. <laughs> I feel... No one wants to take Gillen. <laughs> I'm gonna say Bendis <laughs> because... Bendis is bending things, and it makes me think of Bender of Futurama, and Futurama has nothing to do with X-Men, so D, Brian Michael Bendis. (laughs) I'm also going to say Bendis because three names is better than two names. Ooh. (laughs) Well, hot shotsy, because it is in fact Brian Michael Bendis. Brian Bendis's 
final issue of his Uncanny Saga, number 600, was released in the tail end of January of 2016. What a slacker. You're right. The X-Men franchise rebooted with Extraordinary X-Men number one by Jeff Lemire in February. But that reboot line was very short-lasted, resetting for the color years shortly thereafter, which then reset for the return to Uncanny, which then reset for Hoxpox. Speaking of which, I actually just got my Docs trade in the mail, my volume one of the six issues of Dawn of X. I was actually really impressed by the number of back matter pages, really impressed by the thoroughness of the cover gallery. I know we had talked about as a team, either collecting, you know, individually by series or by line. I think so far, one trade in, I'm pretty happy that I got the volume trade. I'll keep everybody appraised of how it goes, but I just wanted to mention on the topic of docs, got to put that out there. It's just suddenly occurred to me that while we're doing this, wouldn't it have been cool if in advance this had been planned out so every four years equaled one year in X time? Now, I love that you bring that up because that was for many years, roughly the prevailing cycle by which age was measured in the Marvel Universe. Five or so years in comic publishing time usually amounted to roughly one year of life cycle time. But the introduction of children and next generation characters made it difficult to keep a consistency across those generational lines in a way that represented fluidity. So we sort of get Cyclops hit 38 and is not going to get older, but Cannonball can age up to like 32 and then he'll stay there and Hope can hit like 24, but then she's got to stay there and we're going to get to play some sort of real exciting sliding scale because no one's as smart as you and thought of that in advance. (laughs) (laughs) Funny. I hope against all hope that when the next leap day rolls around, we're still churning out this amazing show and we get to talk about how X-Men is now published weekly. And I can't even imagine my wallet just fucking hated that joke. But until we come what? back I would, for my wallet. I would not be able to afford that. No, Marvel. Fr- fr- no, that's why fr- my, my wallet was just like, no, fuck friend you. Of, fr- friend of the pod, Marvel, please don't make X-Men be weekly. Thank you. Don't, don't Avengers us, man. We're not trying to get Spidey brain trusted. So many books. (laughs) But until we come back to discuss the incredible pages of Giant Size X-Men number one, X-Men Fantastic Four number two, and a bunch of other amazing stuff that Kyle listed last time. Kyle, where can everybody find you on the interwebs? You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantus82. Dylan, where can everybody find you? Everybody can find me on Facebook at my X-Men Facebook group that Regina helps me moderate. That is called House of X. Or you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Regina, where can everyone find you? You can find me on Twitter at the Red Queen underscore G. And on Instagram at the Red Queen underscore on underscore IG. And on Facebook in the House of Goblin Queen. Jonah, where can everybody find you? If you'd like to find me and reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? 
Guys, you can find me all over this amazing network on shows like HTML, which I do with a bunch of the lovelies here, as well as the incredible Kevo, my wonderful husband, Jonah's incredible boyfriend. Don't forget to take a look through the back catalog of X's for Podcast, where you can find us talking about the issues mentioned here, released in 1976, 1980, and 1984, as we continue to make our way through the 1980s of the uncanny X-Explosion. You can also find me on my web portals like wearecrocoa.com and xsforpodcast.com where you can find news and episodes of these shows as well as my online web comic, kidriotcomics.com. You can also find me on Instagram, never really wearing a shirt, at nicoaction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Guys, and until next time, hopefully not four years from now, we'll see ya. Bye. Bye. Goodbye.